0: This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me this Wednesday. Our hour of old-time radio crime begins with the adventures of Philip Marlowe this week. Here The Anniversary Gift, his story from April 11th, 1950. After that, it's Dragnet and The Big Chet, their episode from April 5th, 1953.
1: Get this and get it straight crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. This time, a platinum wristwatch, a body on a lonely strip of beach, and a case of heart failure in a Beverly Hills garage, all added up to blackmail, 25 years old, and a killer who would never be caught. It happened like this.
0: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. In just a moment, tonight's story. But first, a message from the Ford dealers of America.
2: The whole country's talking about the great 1950 Ford. Listen to what Mr. Carl Moore of Kingston, Pennsylvania, one of more than 420,000 delighted owners, says about his new Ford.
0: I leave my car out on the street a lot in winter, but you'd never know it to look at my 50 Ford's paint job. It's still as new-looking as when I bought it. I'll never stop wondering how Ford can sell a car that stands up so well for so little money. And speaking of getting a lot for little money, my Ford gives me up to 22 miles to a gallon of gas.
2: Yes, it's hard for Ford owners to keep the good news to themselves. The news about the economy of the big new Ford. From its low initial price to its high resale value. From its low cost of maintenance to its thrift on gas and oil. Ford is a real economy buy. But prove it for yourself. Your neighborhood Ford dealer has the facts on Ford economy. And he'll be glad to have you test drive the big 1950 Ford in your own way.
0: And now we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Anniversary Gift.
1: Turn left at the next corner, Cabby.
0: Okay. Boy, this Beverly Hills in the sunny afternoon is really something, ain't it? Yeah. Wide streets, classy homes. Boy, these jokers got it made. Some life. Nothing ever gets to them to bother them except the income tax, maybe. Yep. Here it is, mister.
1: 8834
3: Beverly Road. What a joint. Yeah. Um, wait for me, huh? Sure, sure, mister. <laughs>
1: The door was answered by a girl of about 16, a tall, slender girl with dark eyes. Too deep for her years.
4: Oh, come in, won't you? I believe Dad's expecting you.
1: She led me across a living room as dignified as the lobby of a bank to a door that she opened. If you'll wait here in the library, I'll tell Dad you've come. The library of Stanley Towner, my new client, was as somber as his living room, except for one thing. Over a fireplace that half-filled one wall was a life-size portrait of a woman. A most beautiful woman. Could have been a painting of what the girl who had just left would look like in another 25 years. I was still staring at the picture when Stanley
5: Tarner came in. That's a portrait of Margaret, my wife. We lost her one week ago today. I'm sorry, Mr. Tarner. Well, we'd been expecting it for over a year. The, The doctors had warned us, but... Even when you're braced for a blow like that, it... uh, Yes, I know what you mean. It was her heart, Marlowe. She was coming home from a shopping trip in Westwood last Tuesday evening when it happened. She had her own car and was just pulling into the garage here when the attack seized her. Catherine, my daughter, and I both heard her car hit the garage wall. We ran out and found her. The doctor did everything possible. Wednesday morning, she was was dead. I'm sorry. It's all right, Mr. Thomas. I must tell you all this because the. The reason I called you here has to do with Margaret's death. I don't understand. I. I I've got to get Mar- Margaret's watch back. A what? A watch? Yes, a wristwatch. It's, um. Uh, well, I'll try to explain. I loved my wife very deeply, Marlowe. Now that I've lost her, the most important thing in the world to me is the preservation of her memory. Can you understand that? It's natural
1: that you'd cling to things that remind you of a Mr. Towner. Uh, now, what about the watch?
5: It, it's lost. Somewhere in Camino Beach. You know where that is? Yes, a few miles below Redondo. Yes, that's right. The day Margaret died, I had taken her watch with me to have it repaired. I went down the coast on some business, and on the way back, I stopped at Camino Beach for lunch. A place called the Trade Winds. You had the watch with you when you went in? Yes, in my overcoat pocket. I came out and got in my car and was halfway back to my office before I realized it was gone. I, I've i got to get it back, Marlowe. How much is it worth? In cash, about $500. But to me, now, it's it's worth 20 times that. Uh, what's the watch like? It's a Benris, platinum, and set with emeralds. Mm-hmm. I gave it to Margaret on our 20th wedding anniversary. There's an inscription on the back... To Margaret from Stanley with Eternal Love. I know that watch is somewhere in Camino Beach. Can you find it and bring it back here to me? There's nothing more you can tell me? Unfortunately, that's
1: all there is. I'll do my best, but uh, I can't guarantee a thing. The cabby waiting outside drove me back to the gas station on Wiltshire where I picked up my own car fresh off the grease rack and headed for the ocean and the sunset. It was getting dark by the time I reached Camino Beach, a rickety, salt-cake little town jumbled in between the highway and the surf. My first stop was the Tradewinds Cafe, a waterfront shack on spindly legs standing knee-deep in a smelly backwash. It only took ten minutes to find that there was nothing there for me. After that, I drew a blank at each of the three hawk shops in town. Wound up an hour and a half later, no farther than the sidewalk curb. Or I watched a traffic cop brand my tire with his parking marker. Plant a heavy foot on my bumper to steady his bike and light a cigarette.
6: Hiya. Is this your car? Yeah.
1: What is it? Am I overparked? parked? Nope, not yet. Just borrowing your bumper a minute. Fine? Of course not. Got a lot of scratches already. Say, uh, that's a fancy chalk label you put on the side of that tire there. Z, uh, the mark of Zorro,
0: huh? <laughs> no, the mark of Ziegler. That's me. That's me. Just a little thing I worked out to add a personal touch to my business. <laughs> uh, you're a stranger on here, aren't you? Yeah, from L.A. Uh-huh. Saw you coming out of the pawn shop there. You don't look like the
1: type. <laughs> well, I'm not, as long as my luck holds. Actually, a friend of mine lost a wristwatch here in town. I'm trying to locate it. Pretty good watch, is it? Yeah, good enough. The really tough part is that it has a very big sentimental value. I've tried all three of the pawn shops in town, but uh, no dice.
0: You know, if I had a friend who'd lost a good watch, I
1: think I'd check in at uh, Sean's bicycle shop on 3rd Street. Well, thanks a lot, Ziegler. Don't mention it. Oh, uh, incidentally, I wouldn't bother to tell him who sent
0: me down if I was you. So long.
1: Hello. Hello. Hello, anybody there? Hello, Sean?
7: What do you want? I'm close for the night.
1: I'm uh, interested in a lady's wristwatch, Mr. Sean.
7: Are oh, you now?
1: Just how does that bring you to
0: a bicycle shop? Look,
1: we both know you're a fence, so let's not waste time on that. The well, watch I'm after is platinum, set with emeralds, and has an inscription on the back To Margaret from Stanley with eternal love. A bright sentiment, I'm sure. Have you seen the watch? No. Look, Sean. Either I beat your tongue as limber as the St. Bernard's ears, or you accept this $20 in exchange for some straight information. Peacefully. Now take your choice and take it fast.
0: Uh, $20. What kind of a choice is that? But I don't have the watch, buckle.
1: But you have seen it.
0: Oh, Five, six days ago, a fellow brought that watch in here. wanted to know what it was worth. I said 500 He laughed in my face.
1: Who was this guy?
0: You mentioned something about $20. Oh,
1: yes. Here. All right, now,
0: give. Oh, that's better. His name is Chip Menashe, and summers he works in the concessions in the pier, and winters he's nothing more than a beachcomber. Lives in a little room out in the pier behind the shooting gallery, and that bucko is your $20 worth.
1: It'd better be, Shane, or I'll be back for my change. The amusement pier was deserted. When I finally found the one-room shack tacked on behind the shooting gallery, it was dark and quiet. I knocked once, got no answer. So I pushed a wad of rags out of a broken pane of glass in the door, reached inside, and unsnapped the lock and went in. With a light from the one naked overhead bulb, I started through the room. On a packing crate that passed for a dresser, I found a week-old newspaper clipping that said the body of one Leon Stice of Camino had been found on an isolated beach Wednesday morning. Shot in the chest, no apparent reason. Stice was survived by his wife, Nancy, of 320 Front Street. I got real busy wondering why a bum like Chip Menashe saved old newspaper clippings of murder stories when a noise outside turned me toward the open door.
7: What are you doing in my place?
1: Uh, You weren't home, so I came in to wait.
7: You a cop or something?
1: No, I'm no cop, Menashe. The name's
7: Marlowe.
1: Maybe we can do business. Sit down. I'll get you. I, uh, collect old watches. Mm. A mutual friend sent me, Manashi.
7: Yeah?
1: I'm interested in ladies' watches particularly. Maybe something in platinum with emeralds.
7: Okay, Pally, what's the proposition?
1: Uh, nothing until I see the merchandise. Now how about putting it on display, huh? <laughs> I can't hear you, Pally. Ah, oh, come on now. Where's the watch?
7: Don't rush me, mister. Don't rush me. Get you nowhere. <laughs> All right. Uh, make me a proposition. Ten
1: grand? Ten... Ten thousand? Uh-huh. You must be out of your mind.
7: Yeah, we'll see who's out of their minds. That's a very valuable watch. Maybe you better get out of here and add it all up again.
1: Yeah, maybe I'd better at that. But uh,
7: Meneshi, don't go away because I'll be back. <laughs> I won't go away. I know when I'm sitting on top of the pile. <laughs> As I walked
1: away, a hunch kept whispering to me that the body of a guy named Leon Stice, found on a lonely beach, was somehow tied in. So I decided to pay a call on his widow. I drove down Front Street to number 320, but there was nobody home. As a matter of fact, the only sign of life on the entire block was a red neon pelican and a blue neon martini glass above the door of a bar across the street. So I walked over and went in. A couple of questions later, I found Nancy Stice sitting alone in the back. The offer to buy a drink was the only introduction I needed.
3: Sure,
8: you can buy me a drink. Hey, Charlie. Okay, Nancy.
1: I, uh, I'm an old friend of your husband's, Nancy. I just heard.
8: Huh. That louse didn't have no friends. Come hey, you uh, Nancy. There. Is it for
6: you, mister? Uh,
1: no. Um, here, keep Thanks.
8: it. Thanks. your eye. Nah. I got nothing against Leon Stice. Except 25 years of living with him in a Camino Beach rat hole on nothing. That's all.
1: Any idea why he was killed?
8: For the role he was carrying.
1: After what you just said, that makes no sense.
8: That's the way it was. And I didn't get one red cent of it. It was all gone when they found him.
1: Did you tell the cops he had money on him?
8: Nah. I hate cops.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, where did Leon get this dough?
8: It told me he ran into an old acquaintance who was staking him. Some guy named Martin Vogel who used to live here in Camino Beach years ago.
1: Martin Vogel was staking him? To what?
8: Leon said him and Vogel was going in business together. The cash was an advance. Oh, sure. He was going to be such a big shot.
1: What kind of business, Nancy?
8: Just between... Just between you and me, the only business that crummy mind of his would work on was blackmail. Take it from me.
3: Hmm. Now, how
8: about another drink for his grief-stricken widow, huh?
1: I'll, uh, leave a buck on the bar on my way out.
0: In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, a brief message from the Ford dealers of America.
2: From coast to coast, Ford owners agree the big new Ford brings you more for your money. More in comfort, more in performance, and more in economy. But only through personal experience can you appreciate the restful ease of Ford's famous midship ride and the luxurious comfort of Ford's non-sag foam rubber cushion front seat. Only by driving this great car can you enjoy its smooth power and solid roadability. And only by getting the facts about Ford's economy can you understand that so powerful, so smooth riding, and so beautiful a car can cost so little to buy to run, and to maintain. But see what the new Ford gives you. Find out how much it saves you. Yes, before you buy any car at any price, it will pay you to stop by your local Ford dealers. Take the wheel of the 100-horsepower V8 or its companion in quality, the 95-horsepower 6. Once you've driven it, you'll agree. The new Ford is the one truly fine car in the low-price field.
0: Now we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Anniversary Gift.
1: I left the Pelican Club, got into my car and started for the local law on the chance that I could learn something more about the new question mark I'd picked up named Martin Vogel. Ten minutes later, I parked my car under the cracked globe that oozed sick purple light over a weather-beaten sign, Camino Beach Police. A fat sergeant huddled over what could have been the original teletype machine. When I presented my credentials, he jabbed a fat finger at a dirty glass door marked Captain Elvin Bush, Chief of Detectives. Inside, a small old man, neat in a clean white shirt, groomed silver hair, and a gentle smile was strapping on a shoulder holster when I put my license on his desk. When I stopped talking, he got up and extended an almost delicate hand.
6: I certainly hope we can help you, Mr. Marlowe. Martin Vogel, you say?
1: Yes, it might have been a long time ago, Captain, maybe even 25 years, if he was mixed up with the police at all. Uh, do your
6: records go back that far? Oh, yes, by the apple crate load. And I mean that literally, Mr. Marlowe. You see, in Camino Beach, police files, fixtures, and furniture are somewhat lacking. City appropriations only go where they show. Public bird baths, statues of the mayor. Oh, here. This bottom crate here, marked, uh, let's see, uh, 1921 to
1: 1930.
6: Figure he was arrested along in there, this Vogel?
1: Yeah, if he was arrested. Yeah, dusty, isn't it? <laughs> well,
6: the cards are alphabetical. Yes.
1: Yeah. And yeah, let's see: Riker, Rooney, Stemple. By the way, Mr. Marlowe, what's your angle? Uh, I'm not sure, Captain Svenson. Underway, gentlemen. Vogel, Martin. Got it, eh? Yeah, picture and all.
6: Bring it over here in the light.
1: Yeah. Uh, Martin Vogel arrested Camino Beach Hotel, May 28, 1923, on warrant from Chicago, Illinois police. Returned to Chicago, sentenced to five years in state penitentiary for embezzlement. Arresting officer, patrolman Elvin Bush.
6: Hmm. Picked him up myself, did I? Well, I've locked up a lot of people in the last 35 years.
1: Yeah, I guess you have it. Holy smokes. Huh? What?
6: That can't be. What is it, Mr. Marlowe? You look kind of pale.
1: There was no mistaking it. The time-yellowed picture of Martin Vogel made it plain. Vogel and my client, the distinguished Mr. Stanley Towner, were one and the same. meant that Tonner had lied to me, and more important, had no doubt killed Leon Stice, who was blackmailing him because he knew he was vocal. I left Captain Bush, piled into my car, and pointed it back for the amusement pier, where one way or another, I was going to get Chip Menashe to fill in a few remaining blanks for me. Marlowe, Menashi. I want to talk business.
7: Okay, Marlowe. Looks like I doped it right. I thought you'd come hey. back.
1: All right. Now get up. And listen hard. I want the watch and the story that comes with it. I told you my price. It's still ten grand. You're bluffing, Menashe. You know the watch means money, but you don't know why.
7: Yeah, Mr. Wisenhoff.
1: All right, now come on. Talk.
7: Okay, okay, quit. I'll tell you what you want. I took the watch from Leon Stice. I found him dead on the beach. It was quenched in his fist.
1: And the dough you're spending?
7: Was in his wallet. Warm me up, will you?
1: All right. Come on. Now sit over there. Hands in your lap. School isn't out yet.
7: What more do you want Marlow?
1: How do you tie the watch in with Stanley Towner?
7: What makes you think I did?
1: The fact that I was sent here to Camino Beach and the fact that you were ready and waiting for somebody. Well?
7: Okay, okay. Uh, I was lucky. When I read about Stice in the papers, I also just happened to read another article. an Oddity, you might say. About a woman in Beverly Hills. A rich man's wife who got a heart attack in her car. Just she pulled into her garage. woman called Towner, Front name Margaret. Wife of a big shot broker. Also called Towner, Front name Stanley. I went from there. I was shrewd.
1: Yeah, genius. Okay, now give me the watch. Come on,
7: let's have it. All right, get your mitts off. Here. Now you're real happy, muscles,
3: happy that you... Hey, cops. Hey, Menashe, wait a minute.
1: By the time I got to the door, he was halfway across the boardwalk to his car. But Captain Bush and his sergeant were ready and waiting. When Menashe was next to the gun he kept in his glove compartment, the spotlight on the squad car slashed through the dark, found him, and froze him in a position.
6: We've got you, Menashe. you better quit. Finish it! you
7: hear me? No, sure. so you listen, Papa. Let him have it, Becker.
1: The windshield sprang into little pieces. Uh,
7: that got it. Come on, Becker. Yes,
1: I waited until captain and Becker were next to the body and had lifted it off the steering wheel. Then I moved quietly along the side of the buildings as far as the squad car. There, I turned and started back toward them.
6: Hey, hey, what happened? Oh, it's you, Captain. What brings you around here, Mr. Marlowe?
1: A guy in town told me that somebody named Chip Menashe might give me a lead on Martin Vogel.
6: You won't be able to now. That's Menashe. What? We wanted him for a week-old stick-up murder.
1: Stick-up murder? Uh, that guy on the beach? The same.
6: Say, Becker, uh, you find the money on him? Right, some three hundred bucks, Captain. Good. Well, he's better call for the wagon now. Check. Funny thing, Mr. Marlowe, one fingerprint did it. Oh, how's that? That guy on the beach, Leon Stice, who found his empty wallet in the sand next to him. It had an Isenglad's front over his driver's license with a thumbprint that wasn't his.
1: But was Chip Meneschi's, huh?
6: We got on to Meneschi because he was spreading a lot of dough around. Today, Becker got down here and lifted one of his prints.
1: That sensed it, huh?
6: Yes, that, and the shot he just threw at me.
1: Uh, Strictly a stick-up killer who got caught.
6: Marlowe, about this Martin Vogel, uh, you uh, still want to let it go that the Beverly Hills police are going to get in touch?
1: Uh, I think so. Good night, Captain Bush. The ride back to Beverly Hills was an uncomfortable hour and a half, cold and empty. I was glad that I had things to do like stop and start and shift gears who kept me from thinking too much about a lot of things and a lot of people I wish I'd never heard of. People like Stanley Towner, who I had every reason to be against, but who I was starting to pull for... Stanley Tanner, a man who had started all over again after a single mistake made 25 years ago. A man who had fought to build good things, like a comfortable home. A marriage to... to a woman in a painting. A 16-year-old likeness named Catherine. But Stanley Tanner, who was also a killer on a lonely stretch of beach far from home. Destroying something rotten who would destroy him. A killer that nobody knew about, except me. Well, I pulled into the driveway and parked behind the car that had been Margaret's. As I got out, the light of the garage went on and the side door of the house opened. I felt almost wrong dropping my hand around the thirty-eight in my side pocket.
5: Good evening, Mr. Marlowe.
1: You have the watch? Yeah. I had quite a tussle getting hold of it. I imagined you would. not is dead, Mr. Donner. Menashe? Who, uh, who is Menashe, Mr. Marlowe? The reason you hired me? The man who called you and dangled this bait... Yeah, you were right. It's a beautiful watch, Mr. Bogo.
5: Bogo, You you know about it? Yeah,
1: they keep police files a long time. I know about everything. Except why you didn't go after the watch yourself. Well, I, I, I was afraid. Afraid to show yourself in the town where somebody might remember you, huh? The town in which you had committed a murder, is that it?
5: Yes, yes, that's it exactly. Oh,
7: Dad? Huh? Dad, is that you down there? Uh, yes,
5: dear. Me, Mr. Marlowe. Oh,
7: well, why don't you come into the house? It's so late and it's chilly. You'll catch a
5: desert cold out there. Yes. In a while, dear. Now go back to bed.
7: <laughs> All right. Good night, Dad. Good night, dear. Well, good night, Mr. Marlowe. And please make him do as I say, will you?
1: Uh, yes, I, I will, Catherine. Good night.
5: Do you mind if we go along to the police at once, Mr. Marlowe? I'd rather she didn't know right now. Tomorrow is soon enough. And uh, can we take your car?
1: Yeah. The lights go off out here? Yes, the switch is on the garage wall over there. Okay, get in. All right. You know, Mr. Tanner, I'm sorry about Catherine and the way she's going to be hit, but... hit by this thing.
5: The switch is there on your right. On your right, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, yeah. It was a very nice house. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Mr.
1: Tanner, you certainly loved Margaret a lot, didn't you?
5: Completely,
1: Mr. Marlowe. And her memory, too? Why do you ask? Something that makes me awfully happy. Mr. Tanner, you didn't kill Leon Stice. Marlowe, what are you saying? That you never lost your wife's watch at Camino Beach. You never had it. She lost it herself. Lost it when she struggled with Leon Stice just before she killed him for your sake. For you and Catherine and everything you've worked no, for. No, Marlowe, no. Yes, you... Margaret had a bad heart. She knew she didn't have long to live. Also, she knew that Stice was blackmailing you. It figures, Tonner. And what also figures is that you'd rather pay for a murder that you didn't commit than to have Margaret's name soiled. Yes, I would. And I will. Because you can't prove any of this. Correction, Mr. Tanner, I can with your wife's car there in the garage, the car in which she died on what you said was her return from Westwood. Which it was? No, not according to a funny little chalk mark I just saw on one tire it wasn't. A little white Z that a policeman named Ziegler in Camino Beach makes to check on parking time. And we can go on from there. Your confession won't mean a thing. But, Marlowe, it will,
5: it will, it must. <sighs> no. Oh, no, I guess it won't. I guess you can't hide the truth very often, can you? No.
1: Only once in a great while. And then, strangely enough, only when it seems like the right thing to do. What do you mean?
5: Why did you stop the motor?
1: There's one thing I haven't told you yet. The way things worked out in Camino Beach, Mr. Tanner, The police there think that Menashe killed Leon Stice, and they're happy that way. They never heard of you or your wife. And I don't see why they should now. Well, yes. I mean that nobody really knows the whole story. Nobody except you, Marlowe. Nobody, Mr. Towner. Good night.
5: Thank you, Mr. Marlowe. Good night. <laughs>
0: Philip Marlowe will be back in just a moment. But first, a word from the Ford dealers of America.
2: Tonight, there are more than 420,000 enthusiastic 1950 Ford owners, and it seems as though most of them are talking about this car. Listen to what Judge Richmond B. Keach of Washington, D.C., has to say about his new Ford. I was so satisfied with my 49 Ford that
7: I decided to get a 50 as soon as they became available. I've been more than pleased with the 50. Truthfully, I see no cause to pay more when a Ford gives me all the performance, quiet, and comfort a man can ask for at such a reasonable price. The Ford is wonderfully easy to handle, particularly
2: in traffic. Yes, ask any Ford owner how he feels about his big new Ford, and he'll tell you it's tops for performance and for comfort. But prove it for yourself. Drop into your neighborhood Ford dealers and test drive this truly great car. You'll be amazed when you discover how little it costs to buy, to run, and to maintain. Do it tomorrow. Test drive the big new 1950 Ford. Be sure and be with us
0: again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
1: This time I was in the country where the night should have been nothing but peace and quiet. But a pair of angry eagles changed all that. One was solid gold and too close to a battered corpse. The other weighed 160 pounds and was too quick with his fists. In or out of the ring.
0: The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character. Tonight starred Bill Conrad, are produced and directed by Norman McDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Sammy Hill, John Daner, Gene Bates, Ralph Moody, Larry Dobkin, Harry Bartell, and Edgar Berrier. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>
9: Chesterfield. Chesterfield is best for you. First cigarette with premium quality in both regular and king size. Chesterfield brings you Dragnet.
10: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. A pair of holdup men have been staging a series of robberies in your city. You have their description. You know their method of operation. Your job, get them. Years ahead of them all. Chesterfield is years ahead of them all. The quality contrast between Chesterfield and other leading brands is a revealing story. Recent chemical analyses give an index of good quality for the country's six leading cigarette brands. The index of good quality table, which is a ratio of high sugar to low nicotine, shows Chesterfield quality highest.
9: Chesterfield quality highest. 15%
10: higher than its nearest competitor.
9: Chesterfield quality,
10: highest. 31% higher than the average of the five other leading brands.
9: Yes, Chesterfield is first with premium quality in both
10: regular and king size. Don't you want to try a cigarette with a record like this? Chesterfield. (laughs)
9: It was Tuesday, September 6th.
11: It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Didion. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 8.02 a.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery.
12: Joe, is that you? Yeah. Did you just get in? Yeah, a couple of minutes ago. The last run from the stats office come in yet? No, I called them. They said it'd be about 10. Hey, you look kind of beat. Yeah, I had a little
11: trouble sleeping last night. went over this thing. Someplace the guys must have made a mistake.
12: I can't figure it. Yeah. I've been trying to figure an angle, too. Saw the skipper this morning. What did he say about it? Nothing. Asked how we were doing. I told him we had a couple of things cooking. He didn't say anything. I guess he's getting plenty of heat from the front office. His pills are getting bigger. Stomach's giving him trouble again, I guess. Yeah, he had some this morning. Looked big enough for a horse. I never saw such big pills, Joe. He could hardly swallow them. Purple, too. Yeah. Well,
11: Eleven jobs in three months. All the same M.O., all the same descriptions. None of them add up to anything we can make.
12: Yeah. Skipper said he had a call from the insurance company that underwrote the jewelry store they hit last Thursday. Yeah. Said the guy was real nasty. Said if we couldn't clean it up, he was going to the police commission to get some action that way. Robbery, Friday. Who? Oh, yeah, Rod. Yeah,
11: sure, I remember. How's it going? Oh, that's good. What? Yeah. Yeah, I guess we can come right down. All right, sure. Okay, Rod, thanks. We'll be right there. Remember Rod Nealon, the guy we nailed for robbery five years ago? Nealon? Yeah, I know who you mean. He wants to see us, says you got some information. Yeah. About the guys we're after. <laughs> for the past three months, a pair of holdup men had been victimizing the owners of large jewelry stores and supermarkets. In each case, the descriptions of the two suspects was the same. Suspect number one was described as WMA, 30 to 35 years old, red hair, tall and lean. Suspect number two was described as WMA, 25 to 30 years old, 5 foot 7, 120 pounds. Victims reported that the larger of the two bandits had a slight stutter, but neither of them had any visible marks or scars. In each instance, the method of operation the bandits used was the same. The two men would enter the store at about 10 a.m. The smaller of the two thieves would ask to use the telephone. He'd go to the rear of the store, and there he would produce a thirty-two caliber automatic. The other man would pull a sawed-off shotgun... And together, the two of them would tape the victim's hands and feet and lock them in a rear room. Then they'd rifle the safe and leave. None of the victims could tell us if a pair used a car. Everyone concerned had been shown mug books, but they were unable to make an identification. The M.O. had been run through the stats office, but after the possibles had been checked out, we had nothing. Communications had been gotten off to George Brereton up at C.I.I. Sacramento, but they were unable to help us in making an identification. For three months, the holdup men were able to hit where they wanted and when they wanted, and it seemed as if we were unable to stop them. All sources of information had been checked, but they netted us no new leads. 8:25 a.m. Frank and I drove over to see Rod Nealon. He worked in a small machine shop on South La Brea. He checked with the shop foreman and got permission to talk to us. He led us to a small lunch stand around the corner from the shop.
12: We ordered a cup of coffee, and Rod told us why he'd called.
11: I got to reading the
13: papers, read about these holdups, and figured maybe I could give you guys a hand.
12: We can use it, Rod.
13: You guys were pretty nice to me when I got picked up, sort of figure I owe you a favor. Well, what's the information you got, Rod? Well, I was in the bar the other night, see, Friday night, placed down on 3rd, you know, having a beer. Yeah. Well, I sat there for a little bit, chewing up a storm with a bartender, and these two guys come in. Got a girl with them. Uh-huh. Well, the three of them go over to a booth, sit down and order drinks. I didn't pay much attention to them. You know, it's none of my business. Yeah, go ahead. Well, when they put in their order, bartender and me got kind of laughing about it. Why is that? Well, the two guys ordered bourbon, but the girl ordered one of those weird mixed things. You know, creamed de mints and creamed de cocoa and chopped up ice. Real weird. When well, I looked over at her, usually the only people who order things like that are young kids. I asked the bartender about it. Yeah. He said, that's all the girl ever ordered. Said they came in all the time. Steady customers. Well, what makes you think they're the other ones were after, Rod? Well, the way they looked and acted. Two fellas were loaded with money, had a roll of choke a horse. Right then, I didn't think much about it. Figured maybe they were just trying to impress the girl, you know. Mm -hmm. Didn't really think much about it then. On the way home, I stopped and picked up a morning paper. I read about the robberies. I noticed the descriptions you had on them. Fit the two guys in the bar to a Tall redhead, short dark fella. Big one even had that stutter.
12: You got any names on these two fellas?
13: No, I didn't hear anything. Not from them, anyway. I, I asked the bartender. He said the big one was called Chet and the little guy's named Vince. He didn't know much about them, just said they came in a lot and had a lot of money to spend. Any idea where they lived? No, I don't think he knew. How about a car? Did you see one? Uh Uh-uh. No, like I said, I was there when they came in, and I left before they did. If if I'd known what the bit was, I'd have stuck around and tried to get some more information for you. I didn't even figure it until I got home and saw the papers.
12: You heard anything around about the two men?
13: Not a thing. That's straight, too. I'm carrying a lunch bucket now. I got a job, and I keep my nose out of trouble. I had enough jail. I don't want any more of it. Well, that's good to hear, Rod. I learned. No more. <laughs> Tough to learn it that way, but I guess there ain't no other. Now, sir, I'm clean. I'm going to stay that way. Like I said, though, you guys were nice to me. You gave me a break. I want to help you out. You know, sort of say thanks.
12: Yeah, Rod, and we appreciate it, too. You know that.
13: Listen, anything I can do, I'm with you, fella. Where is this bar? It's a place on 3rd called Tad's. It's a little giant. Yeah, we know it. Most of the guys come in are there for contact. You know, trying to set something
11: up. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just it, Rod. What do you mean? Well, I think that if Frank and I walk into the place, somebody will make us sure we're known there, we'll burn the place, lose the two men.
3: I
13: guess so. Well, you want me to hang around there, keep you posted, let you know what the guys are doing? Well, that's kind of to you, Rod. They <laughs> found out I was playing footsie with you, they nailed me sure, you know that. Well, you know we'll give you all the help we can if you want to do it. It's going to be a little expensive sitting in there. can't just sit without ordering something, you know. Yeah. Well, oh, here. Here's ten bucks. That ought to
11: keep you going for a while. Yeah, well, for a while. What do you want me to find out? Well, get an address if you can. Find out where these guys work, what they do for a living, if they own a car. Get the license number if you can. Who the girl is, where she lives. Just as much as you can, you know. Okay, I'll like get back to you. Well, we'll be around. You won't have to look far. I hope not. Those two guys get
13: on me. I got big trouble, you know. Well, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, Rod. Well, I want to. You guys have helped me plenty of times. Maybe I can kind of pay you back this way. I know I don't have to do it, Joe. It was my idea. It's okay by me if you guys will stay close. We will, Rod. Well, let's put it this way. You guys just stay close by. I'm 37. I got 28 years to go. Yeah. I want to be around for that Social Security.
11: We got the description of the girl who'd been seen with the two suspects. Then Frank and I drove back to the office. We checked the names Chet and Vince through the moniker files in R&I. We came up with several possibles, but they were eliminated. For the next three days, we kept in constant contact with Rod Nealon. He would report for work at 8 a.m., finish up at 5, and then after a dinner downtown, he'd spend the evening in the bar down on 3rd Street. During that time, he had no contact with the two men. They'd failed to make an appearance at the bar. The kickbacks from up north arrived, but we got no new leads from them. Saturday, September 10th, Frank and I met with Nealon for lunch. He told us that he hadn't seen the suspects since the night he told us about. He said that the bartender told him that they hadn't been in the place on 3rd Street. 3.16 p.m., Frank and I checked back into the office.
12: Well, that went no place. I wonder where they are. I don't know, Joe. Nothing around town on them. Maybe they decided they were running their luck a little close, huh? Well,
11: it could be, but they got no reason to quit. As far as they know, they're in the clear. There's nothing to scare them off. No.
12: You think Rod is playing ball with us? I don't know. There's no
11: reason not to. He came to us. We didn't go to him. Guess he learned his lesson. Takes a lot of nerve to do what
12: he's doing. Glad to see he's playing it straight, though. Yeah. You want to check the book? Yeah. Anything there? No, nothing. This call from Faye wants me to call her before I leave the office. There are a couple of teletypes here. Joe? Yeah? Here's our answer. What? Teletype from San Francisco. Jewelry store was heisted for $150,000. Yeah. Two men, one with a sawed-off shotgun.
11: We sent a teletype to San Francisco immediately, asking for full details on the holdup. The answer gave the M.O. that the two thieves had used and their descriptions. In every detail, the operation matched that of the two men we were looking for. We put in a call to Rod Nealon, but we found that he hadn't reported for work that day. Frank and I drove out to his apartment, but his landlady told us that she hadn't seen him since the day before. Frank and I checked the places where he ate and where he spent his time when he wasn't working. None of his friends had seen him. We spent the next two days looking for him. From a bartender on 7th, we heard that Rod had been in the place on Sunday the night before, and at that time he'd been pretty drunk. The bartender said that he appeared frightened and nervous. Monday, September 12th, 5.30 p.m., Frank and I checked into the office to sign out for the day.
12: I'll sign us out. All right, I'll check the box. I got it. Robbery, Friday. Yeah.
11: Well, where you been? We've been looking all over for you. We thought something had happened. What? When? Yeah. Well, take it easy, Rod. Yeah, we'll get to you. Yeah, what model? You got the license number? Just a minute. All right, go ahead. 2 n three nine two nine one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll see you there. All right, be careful. Rod? Yeah. Says he's been trying to get a hold of us all day. Says he didn't want to leave his name. Two suspects are back in town. Rod says they got a bankroll like Fort Knox sporting a new car. He got the number. Better check it right away. Where's he been? Well, he said he was worried. He's been trying to stay out of sight. Said we better get the guys fast. Yeah. He thinks they're on to him. Our informant, Rod Nealon, told me on the phone that he'd been hiding for the last two days. He said that on the night the robbery suspects had gotten back into town, the bartender had let it drop to them that Rod had been asking questions. They'd started after him, and he'd been on a two-day drunk trying to hide from them. He said that he'd tried to call us at the office several times, but he'd found that we weren't in. He was reluctant to leave his name or a message for fear that the two hoodlums might in some way find out about it. Frank drove over to his apartment, but found that he wasn't there. When I'd spoken to him on the phone, he told me that he'd wait there until we could pick him up. The landlady at his place hadn't seen him and told Frank that she didn't even know that Rod was in the building. While Frank was gone, I checked the license number of the car through RDMV. They called us back to tell me that the car was registered to a Miss Dolly Keene at 18924 Elmwood Drive, Hollywood. Frank got back to the office and we drove out to see the girl. On the apartment register, she was listed as the tenant of apartment 406. We knocked at the door to the manager's apartment and waited. Yes? You the manager, ma'am?
4: Yeah, something I can do for you?
11: We're police officers. We'd like to talk to you. Here's our identification.
4: I see. Friday. Yes,
11: ma'am. It's my partner, Frank Smith. How do you do? How
4: do you do? I'm Barbara Townsend. Would you like to come in and talk? Might be better than the hall. Thank you
11: very much, Miss Townsend.
4: <laughs> it's Mrs. I'm a widow, woman. Husband died seven years ago. I'm sorry to hear that, ma'am. It's all right, Mr. Friday. I'm used to being a widow now. Just sit down. We can have our talk. Thank you. Now, then, what was it you want to talk about? Not something I've done, I hope.
11: No, Miss Townsend. It's about one of your tenants, a Miss Dolly Keene.
4: Oh, that one. Might have known it.
12: Why'd you say that, ma'am?
4: Oh, just because. I always knew she was going to cause trouble here. I knew it. I told Sinbad about it. Told him a lot of times.
12: Sinbad? Give us a
4: description of the man. Tall man, over six feet, red hair. Had a kind of stutter. I never talked to him. but just heard him when they came in. My door's right near the front, you know.
12: Yes, ma'am. Do you have any other friends in the building, ma'am? Do you know?
4: Oh, no, no. Isn't anybody in the building likes her? Well, except that Mr. Newton on the second floor. He's kind of flighty, impressed with a pretty girl, you know. But she's not friendly with anybody.
11: Uh, does she have any visitors, anyone who came to see her?
4: Just her boyfriend, the red-headed one. And then there was the other one. I don't think he was a friend of hers, though.
11: What other one's that,
4: ma'am? Uh, There's a little man, dark. I think he was a friend of the boyfriend. Seemed that way to me.
11: Any of them drive a car, would you know?
4: Well, I don't know about the others, but Miss Keene just got one. Brand new, 1953. Don't know where she got the money for it, but by golly, she's got the car.
12: Uh-huh. She worked, ma'am.
4: I don't know. When she signed the lease, she told me that she was a designer for a clothing company out here. That's a fact. She's got mighty cushy hours. Seems to come and go whenever she pleases.
11: But when did she get the new car, do you know?
4: It's a couple of days ago. She told me that she had to go out of town on some business. Wanted me to keep an eye on her apartment. She didn't have to tell me that. I'm the manager here. Of course, I'm going to watch the place.
9: Yes,
12: ma'am. About the car, please.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, she had it when she came back. Just drove up in it, smart as please. Told me that she wanted a garage for it. Said she didn't want to leave it on the streets at night. I told her she'd just have to wait. We got 18 units here and only 10 garages. All of them are taken. I told her she'd just have to wait. She said she'd maybe leave it over at her sister's for a few days. Her sister's? Yeah, she has a sister in the neighborhood someplace. you know where she lives? No, I don't. Pretty sure it's someplace in the neighborhood, though.
11: Would you know her sister's name?
4: No. Sorry, I can't help you out there either. She's married. Don't know her married name. Miss Keene never mentioned that. Well,
11: how about mail, Miss Townsend? Miss Keene got much mail?
4: I couldn't tell you that. They got their own keys. They opened their own mailboxes. I got no way of telling what they get. I see. Of course, I couldn't see in through the little slots in the mailbox. She got a few letters. I couldn't tell you where they were from, though.
11: I see. she in now, would you know?
4: No. I mean, I don't think she's in. I haven't heard her. Usually she comes in laughing and carrying on, so I'd know if she was in. What's all this about, anyway? What's she done?
11: Well, we just like to talk to her, Mrs. Townsend.
4: Like that, is it? Ma'am. Got something secret to talk about. Huh? No,
11: ma'am, it's not that. It'd be better if we talked to her, that's all. No,
4: well, I hope you get the chance to. Beg pardon? Well, last time I saw her, she talked about leaving town.
9: You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action.
10: Chesterfield is best for you. Listen to this report. It's a report never before made about a cigarette. Smoked day after day by a group of people smoking from 10 to 40 cigarettes a day for a full year, here's Chesterfield's record. A medical specialist giving this group thorough examinations every two months for a full year reports no adverse effects to their nose, throat, and sinuses from smoking Chesterfield's. Don't you want to try a cigarette with a record like that? you'll find Chesterfield's best for you. They're much milder, with an extraordinarily good taste. And for your pocketbook, Chesterfield is America's best cigarette buy.
11: In the company of the manager, Frank and I went through the girl's apartment. In the closets, we found clothing that indicated that she'd returned to the place. We called the office and told them that we were setting up a stakeout on the building. Frank and I went downstairs and parked the car up the street. Frank was in the front seat of the car. I stayed in the back. 8.30 p.m. There was still no sign of the girl. Frank called the office and found that our informant, Rod Nealon, was still missing. We waited. 9.30 p.m. 10. 11.30 p.m. A car answering the description of the girls pulled up in front of the apartment building.
12: Joe? Yeah, I see him. Car matches. Can you see the license? No, not from here.
11: Two people in the car, a girl and a man. Yeah. Well, let's try it.
12: Right. I'll cover the other side, huh? Right. Excuse me.
11: Yeah? Oh, what is it? like to see your identification, please. Oh, what for? I'm t- t- doing nothing. Police officers, like to see your ID. I don't know what, what, what this is all about.
10: All right, mister, get out of the car. I don't know what you guys are trying to prove with all this. Getting so a guy can't take his girl out anymore without cops rousing him.
12: Looks like the other one in the car that just pulled up. Yeah. Vince, get out of here. It's the
10: cops.
3: I'll get him.
11: All right, get your hands in the back of it. Lousy cops, you'll never get him. Stand still.
10: You'll never get him. He's probably got your partner by now. All right, get back in the car. What's
4: going on,
10: Chip? Lousy cops, they think they got us. Vince
11: is a good shot. All right. Give me those ignition keys, lady. What for? Give them to me. Now, both of you, stay in the car.
9: Joe, the apartment house. Over
12: here. How about it? He's up there on the second floor. All right, come on, mister. Give it up.
10: Get away
4: from me, cop. Get away.
12: Throw that gun down here. Come on, throw
11: that
3: gun down.
12: What do you figure, Joe? I don't know. Cover me. I'll go up. How about it? I don't see him.
4: Hey, stop it. Don't shoot. I give up. I give up. I don't shoot anymore. Please.
11: All right, mister. Throw that gun out here. Come on. Throw it out here. All right. There it is. You
6: got it. I'll give you
12: a break. I got it, Joe. All
11: right, come on. Put your hands against that wall. I'm hurt. He
13: shot me. Now leave me alone. I'm hurt. You see that?
12: I'll shake
11: him.
13: All
3: right.
12: He's clean. Call a
11: doctor. Give me a doctor. I'll bleed it. Don't give me a doctor. You're not hurt that bad. Now, come on, let's go. <laughs> I'll give you a hand. Come
3: on. All
4: right, come on. What's all the shooting about? Hmm. Shot him, huh?
11: Yes, ma'am. I better call Georgia Street Frank. Get the other ones in the car. Yeah, I'll stay here with this one. Frank? What's the matter? Something wrong? Yeah, I got to get out of broadcast. They're gone. When the number two suspect had started firing at Frank, I handcuffed the first suspect and I went to Frank's aid. On returning to the car, we found that both suspects had escaped. The man was still handcuffed, so moving around would be difficult for him. A broadcast was gotten out to all units in the area on the two escaped suspects. The car they'd driven was still parked out in front of the apartment. An ambulance arrived and removed the wounded suspect to the county hospital. Before he was taken away, he gave us the names of his two accomplices, a Chester Rayburn and Dolly Keene. We called the office and told him what had happened. Additional teams of men were sent out to help us canvas the area. Frank and I went through the personal effects of Dolly Keene. In a desk drawer, we found a telephone book, and one of the numbers in the book bore the name SIS. It gave a telephone number and an address three blocks from the apartment house. We got in touch with Captain Didion and informed him of the developments. Additional men from Metro Division were sent out to cover the address listed in the telephone book. Captain and also told us that our informant, Rod Nealon, had been found in a rooming house on 3rd Street... ...where he'd been hiding since the two bandits had gotten back into town. He was placed in protective custody. Frank and I went over to the sister's apartment.
12: Yeah, what do you want?
11: Police officers. You Patricia Saxon?
12: Yeah, so what? I want to look at your apartment. What for? There's nothing here that means anything to you. Sister been here tonight? no. I haven't seen her last couple of Anyone days. Anyone here with you? No. We're going to have to look. Yeah, maybe I don't want you to. That's tough, lady. All right, let's shake it down, Frank. Yeah. There's no one here.
7: Isn't anybody with me?
12: Was in the bedroom?
7: Yeah. You better stay away from there. He's got a shotgun. Cover that side,
12: Frank. Yeah.
11: All right, Rayburn. Open the door slow and throw that gun out here. Rayburn, we'll tell you once more. We know you're in there. Now throw that gun out here
10: not coming out, Joe. All right, cop, here it is. I don't want no trouble, you hear? No, no trouble. You got the gun.
11: All right, come on. Get up, Raven, on your feet. <laughs> you too, Miss Keene. Come on out of there.
4: Don't shoot. Please don't. We didn't mean nothing. Don't, don't shoot. we give get up. Well,
11: come on out of there. Keep your hands on your head there.
12: I'll get him.
4: wasn't anything else I could do. Had to do what they tell me come in here with that gun and wanted something to cut those handcuffs off with. Had to do what they said. Yeah, sure. They'd have killed me if I didn't. I know it. They'd have killed me.
10: A couple of more minutes and we'd have had it made. Just a couple more, more minutes, that's all. That's all we needed. Though we got up north, he never got us. We'd have had it made.
4: One more big job. That's what you said. One more and we'd be through. Well, wise God, where are we now?
11: Right where he said you'd be. What? You're through. You're through. <laughs>
10: just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent.
9: On January 18th, trial was held in Department 87, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial.
10: Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you, George Fenneman.
9: Did you know that Chesterfield
11: shows up year after year as first choice of young America? Now, that's based on a survey made in 274 colleges and universities. The reason is we're first with premium quality in both regular and king size. Chesterfield, it's a good mild smoke with a wonderful taste.
9: Chester Lloyd Rayburn and Vincent Robert Parker were tried and found guilty on nine counts of robbery in the first degree. They were sentenced to the state penitentiary for the term prescribed by law. Robbery in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment for a period of not less than five years. Lillian Keene, alias Dolly Keene, was tried and convicted of being an accessory. She received sentence as prescribed by law. Aiding a principal in a felony is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not
10: more than five years. Ladies and gentlemen, in the fight against an old enemy, polio, medical research has armed us with a powerful new weapon, gamma globulin. Used soon enough, it can prevent the paralyzing effects of polio. But first, you must furnish the raw material blood. Doctors urgently need your donation of blood to make gamma globulin. So call the Red Cross. Please don't put it off, it's too important. Call the Red Cross tomorrow and make an appointment to give blood.
9: A series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Peggy Weber, Peter Leeds. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
10: For a million laughs, tune in Chesterfield's Martin and Lewis show, Tuesday on this same NBC station. And sound off for Chesterfield's. Either regular or king size, you'll find premium quality Chesterfield's much milder. Chesterfield is best for you.
9: Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet transcribed from Los Angeles.
10: new Fatima has the tip for your lips. Fatima tips of perfect cork. King size for natural filtering. Fatima quality for a much better flavor and aroma. So remember, new Fatima has the tip for your lips. Fatima. See how smooth they are.
9: Remember, Fatima is made by the makers of Chesterfield. Liggett and Myers. One of tobacco's most respected names.
0: That's it for Case Closed for this week. Hope you enjoyed this week's selections. You can find more from Philip Marlowe, Dragnet, past episodes of Case Closed, and thousands of other old-time radio episodes at relicradio.com. Our shoutcast stream is up and running there, too, with even more old-time radio. And while you're there, you would like to help support this and all of the shows. Help keep it coming to you every week. If that donate button a click, your support makes it all happen. Thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be
3: back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.